today's day and age, we do a ton of online shopping, right? How many of you do the majority of whatever type of shopping you're doing online? Raise your hand, okay. Uh, even our, our grocery orders now are primar primarily online. We just kind of pull up, they stick the groceries in the back, and you head on your direction. One thing I've learned about online shopping, though, I don't do a ton of it. Uh, my wife does. I think that, um, I, I don't know, we, we did some statistic recently about how many times an Amazon box shows up my house uh, during the week. And I, I'm, I'm thinking it's around five out of seven days uh, there's an Amazon box shows up at my house for some reason. And so part of the online shopping experience is what you buy online may not always portray what you get when you open the box. Uh, we found this out at Christmas time. Levi wanted some Transformers robots, and so we found Optimus Prime and Bumblebee and uh, all the, the kind of cohorts that are part of that series, and we ordered them thinking there were going to be these awesome Transformer robots, and they were, except they were about this big. And we were anticipating, I don't know what we were anticipating, human size or something, but we got it, and it was much smaller than we thought, but he ended up loving the robots, and we found this out with other toys, right? That you see, even back in my day, you'd watch TV and you'd see these commercials about how uh, this guy riding this motorcycle is going to just fly through the air at least a solid 25, 30 feet. Uh, when in reality, when you get him, if you can get him to launch in the air, it usually happens about, I don't know, six inches, right? So a little disappointment. This happens with clothes. Um, Ash consistently will buy clothes or whatever online. And then she gets it in the mail and tries it on to see if it's going to fit her like she hoped, and if it doesn't, then she ships it back. That's kind of a different way than the way that we used to shop when you did that stuff in the store, right? And so there's this idea that you get something thinking it's going to be one thing, those high expectation moments, and then it turns out something entirely different. We made this transition in Mark's gospel last week as kind of this continental divide in the gospel of Mark, where for the first half of Mark's gospel, he has been telling us that the king and his kingdom have arrived, that the Messiah is here. That's the kind of the first half of the gospel. And I told you last week that the second half of the gospel is basically the king and his kingdom have arrived, and the king and the kingdom are nothing like what you were anticipating and expecting. So the second half of Mark's gospel is kind of breaking down that the king and his kingdom are not what they were anticipating. That Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah who shows up in the most unexpected manner and catches everyone off guard. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've also been asking ourselves, do we really have an accurate idea of who Jesus is? Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, the Gospel of Mark has been reshaping kind of my understanding of who Jesus is that I kind of had these preconceptions of what I believe Jesus looked like and who he was, and honestly, he looked a lot like me, my beliefs, my preferences, all these things. And then I'm realizing as we make our way through Mark that I had, a I had it wrong in a lot of ways. And so our goal of opening up the Bible and reading the stories of Jesus and breaking them down is that we pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to reshape our idea of who Jesus is, and more specifically, what it means to follow Him. And that's what we're going to dive in today. This friction that has been taking place between the anticipated Messiah and who He actually is kind of reached this pivotal um, watershed moment last week when Jesus has this conversation with Peter. Let me read back up and read our text from last week, and then we'll jump into uh, this week's text. 
This comes right after Jesus has healed the blind man. He's unable to see clearly. And I told you last week that was kind of an illustration of what was happening with the disciples. They are understanding who Jesus is at some level, but it's still a little fuzzy. Uh, verse 27 of chapter 8, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Peter answers correctly, right? And he strictly, he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about it. So Peter answers correctly. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. But he doesn't get it exactly right. He doesn't really grasp who Jesus is. And we see that in our text today. He gets the answer correctly, and then this happens, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, there's that phrase from Daniel 7, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. First sentence is 32, and he said this plainly. So for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus is speaking explicitly. He speaks plainly about this kind of scandalous mission as he explains his redemptive purpose as the Messiah. And if we were to just kind of bottom line it, it's this. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus explains. I'll be betrayed, he says. I will be rejected. I will ultimately be killed. And to add to this confusion... Jesus uses that title, Son of Man, which is a Daniel 7 flashback where Daniel prophesies that the Son of Man, we read it in our call to worship, the Son of Man will come with absolute power in a cloud of, of glory. The Son of Man will establish an everlasting kingdom on earth where He will rule and reign over all the nations of the world. And so when He uses this phrase, Son of Man, Peter's like, sign me up. That's what I'm here for. Rule and reign over all the earth in an everlasting kingdom. World domination? I'm in. That's Peter's mindset. But what they fail to realize, what Peter and the disciples fail to realize in this moment, is that His glory, the glory of Jesus, will come, but only through suffering. That His exaltation will come through humiliation. That his victory comes through defeat. That suffering and betrayal and rejection and death are essential to God's redemptive plan. He used that phrase, the Son of Man must suffer all things. And it's an essential part of God's plan. You see, the Messiah is the Son of Man in Daniel 7, but he is also the suffering servant in Isaiah. He is the sacrificial lamb of Isaiah 53 who will be marred beyond human recognition. Suffering, rejection, death. This is a part of God's salvific plan. Notice, not at the hands of the godless and wicked. That's humanity at its worst, right? That's what we would expect. That godless, wicked people will kill and murder Jesus. But Jesus says, no, I will suffer all these things at the hands of the scribes and the elders and the chief priests. These are religious leaders. 
This is humanity at its best. Religious people. So it's not humanity at its worst, the wickless, wicked and godless, and, you know, yeah, we expect these people to slaughter the Son of God. It's humanity at its best that kills Jesus in the name of religion. And what a built-in warning that is to us who identify as religious people. It's humanity at its best that slaughters the Son of God. Now, thankfully, betrayal and suffering and death are not the end of the story, right? Jesus says you'll be raised again, that the suffering servant will be raised back to life. But the idea of the suffering Messiah is not what the disciples are anticipating. As a matter of fact, Peter recoils from this, like he pulls Jesus aside and corrects him. Not a good idea, by the way. That's what happens at the uh, end of 32. He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. General life rule for you. Do not rebuke Jesus, okay? And so that's what Peter does. He pulls Jesus aside and begins to correct him, to rebuke him. Now, let's be fair to Peter here. What Jesus is teaching of a suffering Messiah is completely foreign to what Peter was taught as a child from all the way up and what Peter believes about what the Messiah will look like. In his worldview and the worldview of his culture, the Messiah will destroy the enemy, not lay down his life for the enemy. So there's that going on for Peter to correct him and rebuke him. And let's not pretend that Peter does not have kind of his own agenda going on here too, right? Peter wants the kingdom to come through brute force, right? World domination, Sign me up for those things, Peter says. He does not realize the kingdom of God is coming through a cross and an empty tomb. He wants Jesus to be who he wants him to be. And so Jesus speaks plainly about a Messiah who suffers and dies and Peter is caught off guard. This is not what he signed up for. So he pulls Jesus aside. Seeks to correct him. He outright rejects God's plan. For Jesus to be betrayed and suffer and die on a cross was unfathomable for the disciples. A cross? An instrument of death? Why would God ever work through that means to accomplish His purposes? And again, we have to pause here to say, God often works in ways that we do not comprehend that we do not agree with. God often works in ways that we scratch our head and say, what is God doing? If I was in charge, I think I would go this path, right? We're lining Jesus up with our agenda, our purposes, our plans. This is how it should hash out. God often works in ways that are unfathomable to our own agenda, our own life, our own plan, even the human mind. We flash back to Isaiah the prophet. He makes it clear, right? His ways are bigger than our ways his thoughts are higher than our thoughts to even try and comprehend who God is and how he's working is beyond the ability of the human mind Paul said in first Corinthians that the word of the cross is foolishness it's folly to those who are perishing but to those of us who are being saved it is the power of God that the cross does not even make sense to the human mind so Jesus responds to the rebuke with a 
rebuke. 33. I use this technique in my parenting. Respond to the rebuke with a rebuke. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And Jesus' rebuke here is pretty firm. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So if there's a general life rule, do not rebuke Jesus. Let's also say that on your top three things that you do not want to hear from Jesus is this phrase, get behind me, Satan, talking about you, right? Get behind me, Satan. So let me tell you what's going on here. By attempting to distract Jesus from this cross-focused mission, Peter, even unbeknowing to himself, has aligned himself with the enemy to divert Jesus from his cross-focused mission, right, is to align himself with the enemy, with the adversary. That's what it means, right? The adversary, the devil, get behind me, Satan, is to align yourself with his mission and not the mission of Christ. So Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you have a self-serving agenda. Now, I want to point out something here that we kind of miss in this text at times. Jesus uses this phrase, get behind me, Satan. There's a built-in invitation here in Jesus' rebuke. Peter, get behind me. Align yourself behind me. Take the position of following me. Get behind me. Listen to me. Follow my agenda, Jesus says, not your own. And then notice he uses this phrase like, to align yourself behind Jesus is to follow the things of God, not the things of humans, of man. Get behind me, Satan, right? Get, follow me, Peter, or Peter. Get behind me, Jesus is saying. Align yourself behind me. Follow my path. Listen to what I have to say. That's what it means to follow the things of God. So, this is so important. A wrong view of who Jesus is leads to a wrong idea of what it means to follow him. This is probably one of the most pivotal points of discipleship. A wrong view of who Jesus is often leads to a wrong view of what it means to follow him. So how that breaks down for us is a disciple of Jesus is someone who is constantly learning more of who Jesus is. Leaning into who Jesus is. How can I know more of him, less of me? To be a learner, to be a student, to be a disciple is to know who he is. To get behind him. Because if I have a wrong view of Jesus, the idea of following him, right? I'm going to have a wrong view of what it means to be his disciple. Now, I'll give you just a brief kind of preview of what's going on here at City Church behind the scenes. We're in this process of 
kind of redeveloping and realigning what our discipleship looks like as a church, as a group of followers that we call ourselves City Church. And a lot of the direction that we're going to be taking is to continue to begin to what, what steps can we take to help the sit people of City Church to understand who Jesus is. We want to constantly be pushing you into understanding more of who Jesus is, who God is, because the more you understand who He is, the more you will align your life on what it means to follow Him. Sometimes we like to start back here and say, if you do these 25 things, then you're a good Christian. If you don't do these things and do these things, then you're a disciple. If you jump through all these seven hoops, then suddenly you're a mature Christian. And we've kind of gotten discipleship wrong. Discipleship is understanding who Jesus is. And when I dive deeper into who Jesus is, who God is, began to really focus in on centering my life around who Jesus is, then I'll begin to understand what it means to follow Him. And we see that principle began to be played out here in the relationship between Jesus and His disciples. And this is the direction that His discipleship will take through the second half of Mark's Gospel. So Jesus now clarifies in these next verses, kind of these three demands, these three requirements. And then he talks about kind of the rationale behind these demands. He gives us a very solemn warning in these remaining verses in this chapter, and then he gives us this confident promise. So let's kind of walk through these last verses together and look at these things. Verse 34, Jesus really begins to kind of lay down the gravity of what he's talking about. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, so both outsiders and insiders, crowd and inner circle, calling the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone, buckle up, if anyone would come after me, okay, if you want to be a Jesus follower, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to pursue Jesus, if you want to come after Jesus, if anyone, right, anyone, that's an open door, but the open door comes with this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the gravity of what Jesus says here is signaled by the fact He summons the crowd to listen. Listen in. Lean in. If you want to know what it means to follow Me, lean in. Now remember, these crowds have been with Jesus. They've been following Him all around. They've been listening to Him teach for days. They've been watching Him heal. Everywhere He goes, He can't get away from the crowd. He tries to retreat. He tries to go to a house. He tries to go to a mountain. And they're constantly leaning in. They're constantly pressing Him. They're constantly bringing the sick to Him. And Jesus is constantly using this language that the crowd is an obstacle to my ministry. They stand in the way. That's why He's telling everybody to keep it quiet because the crowd has a different agenda. And then Jesus leans into the crowd and He says, Come on, come on, lean in. Listen to what I have to say. Disciples, crowd, Listen to what I have to say. If you want to follow me, the invitation is open to anyone who is willing to accept these demands. If you want to come after me, you must, one, deny yourself. That is a crowd separator right out of the gate. Deny yourself. We've been talking throughout Mark's Gospel about this word repentance. That it's not just the idea of I'm sorry for my sin, but the idea of repentance is that I'm turning from. I'm, I'm realigning my life under His rule and reign. I live under His kingship. I live under His rule, His reign. Jesus prayed it in the Garden of Gethsemane like this, Father, not my will be done, but Your will be done. That's the ultimate step of 
denying yourself. God, not my will, but yours be done. God, you have the controlling position in my life. All of us have something in that controlling position in our life. Something, someone, maybe pride, maybe notoriety, maybe money, resources, maybe a spouse, a relationship, a child. We all have something in that controlling position in our life that calls the shots on why we make the decisions we make and how life plays itself out. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. God has to have the controlling position in your life. Now, this idea of self-denial is not some type of asceticism, like I need to go to the desert and cut myself, or it's not some type of self-discipline per se, but it is a, a life attitude of submission to God. That my life attitude as a whole, my, the posturing of my heart is, God, I want your will to be done in my life and not my own. I don't have time to get into the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've told this story here before. <coughs> Bonhoeffer had to write, wrote a lot about uh, following Jesus' discipleship. And he was uh, a martyr who was killed by the Nazi regime. And Bonhoeffer's book on discipleship is just a classic work. And in that book, when he's talking about this idea of denying yourself, here's how he summarizes it. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ. Only of Christ and no more of myself. To see only Him who goes before me. And no more the road which is too hard for me. Once more, all that self-denial can say is He leads the way. Keep close to Him. Deny yourself, Jesus says. And then the second idea. Take up the cross. Take up our cross. So Jesus uses some very vivid imagery here by invoking this image of the cross so over centuries of time obviously we live here in 2022 the cross has been kind of turned into this you know piece of jewelry or something we hang in our churches or you know at, at best a figure of speech for tolerating some kind of inconvenience in our life oh that's my cross to bear right like that that co-worker gets on my nerves well I guess that's my cross to bear my phone went out oh that's my my cross to bear now this child, this child that God gave me, right? This, these, child, these children, and they seem to make the right choices, but this child, this is my cross to bear, right? That's the language we use about the cross, which is mainly kind of just an inconvenience. But that's not where Jesus is going here. That's not the idea of taking up your cross. For these listeners in Mark's gospel, the cross is a symbol. Listen of extreme repugnance. It is an instrument of cruelty and pain and torture and shame and execution. For Jesus to even imply that the Messiah would die on a cross was repulsive to the Jewish people in that time. The Romans reserved crucifixion for the lowest social classes. The vilest criminals, the most rebellious insurrectionists. Like, even as cruel as the Romans were during this period, they would not even crucify other Romans because they felt it was so repugnant. 
If you know anything about world history, you know 71 BC, the Roman general Crassus defeated the slave rebel, rebel Spartacus. There's movies out there about Spartacus and he crucified him. And 6,000 of his followers along the Apian Way that goes toward Rome, 6,000 crosses lined up to show who's in charge. A century later after that happened is around the same time that Mark is recording these very words. Uh, there was a madman ruler that we've talked about a few times through this series named Nero that falsely accused Christians of setting fire to Rome. And the result of that is he had many of them um, tortured and a lot of them crucified. Again, uh, lighting the city of Rome with uh, Christians that were nailed to crosses and then he would light them on fire to light the city at night. So these words spoken by Jesus, they're not cliche and they're not just mere sentiment or a piece of jewelry we wear around our neck or they're not song lyrics of the latest worship song. The reality for Mark's readers is that many of them would die on a cross. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, it means something. It means something to them. It's not, I'm having a bad day, so I'm bearing a cross. This cross imagery is a reminder to Mark's audience and a reminder to us that their suffering, and for them, their potential death under Nero, is not a sign of God abandoning them. It is a sign of identifying with Jesus Himself, who, by the way, walked this path before us and walked this path before them. So when Mark tells this story to his readers in that first century, they know that Jesus has already walked this path ahead of them. That they are identifying with their Savior and King. So by invoking the image of the cross, Jesus demands total allegiance, absolute surrender of our lives to Him. Bonhoeffer says about this Take up your cross idea. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Come and die. Now we can pause right here for a moment and be really honest with each other to say, for the most part, American Christianity simply does not grasp this idea. We don't get it. Most of our faith is built on convenience what works for me in the moment. The idea of taking up our cross somehow, of laying our life on the line, very foreign to how we follow Jesus. Which is the last instruction of Jesus here, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You know what that means? That means that his life path becomes my life path. I'm following him. I'm following Him. He's leading. He's leading my life. I'm following His path. I'm not following my own agenda, my own plans, my own desires. I'm following His. My life is aligning to what He has for me. And again, you know, man, we preach a message of hardcore message of grace here at City Church. But I'll tell you something that I've noticed, and I'm sure Larry can stand and tell you this even more than me because he interacts with a lot of churches. I think the last two years of church life has just shown how much convenience drives the average person that professes to know Jesus. It took one event 
to not only shut down our country, whatever your opinion is about that, but more relatable to us to shut down church after church after church after church after church, right? Including, again, we use wisdom all that time to seek to love our neighbors appropriately. But here's what it unfolded. When the church doors reopened, we realize how many of us are really just following Jesus when it's convenient. When it's convenient. When it doesn't get in the way of my schedule. When it doesn't get in the way of when my kids are supposed to go play a baseball tournament. Whoa. When I didn't have a late night on Saturday night. Did you know that the average church post-COVID is seeing a fraction of attendance of what they saw prior to COVID? I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. I think it has helped prune what it means to follow Jesus and to be all in. But again, it's not Devin up here trying to guilt you into whatever, but this idea of the, the words of Jesus here just smacked me in the face this week, all right? Jesus says, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow my path. And here's just one reason that following Jesus is the right path. Look at 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I like that Jesus appeals here to our most basic desire for security. We like to feel secure in life. The problem is we normally go about seeking security the wrong way. Jesus says to save your life, to bring security into your life, you must lose it for his sake and for the gospel's sake. To lose my life in him is to save my life. This is upside down living that we've been talking about. The word for life here is the same word that's often translated as soul. It's a, the word psyche. It's where we get the idea of psychology, of trying to drill down into who you are as a person. It's the, the core of our existence. In other words, the one thing the one thing that cannot be saved by seeking to preserve it is our soul, the core of our existence. It is only by forsaking our way of life that we actually save who we are. This just goes against everything that we think and every way that we live life. It is upside down living. So here's how that breaks down practically for me as a parent. The best thing that I can pour into my kids is not get all of these degrees or become an athlete and become an all-star doing this or take all of these right steps and you'll be successful or here's what it means to live a good life. The best thing that I can give my kids as a parent is to say to them, no matter what direction your life takes you, love Jesus above everything else. I want all my kids to be successful, whatever that means. That they check all the right boxes. 
according to our cultural standards. And they fail to love Jesus deeply. We forfeited the most important thing in their life. And I'm afraid, again, as parents who feel that pressure all around us in the culture that we live, and honestly, it's how we're bent. If we don't stop and pause and say, all this is awesome and cool, but at the end of the day, if I am not pouring into them a love for Jesus, to prioritize Him above everything else, I'm failing to give them the most important thing about our core, our existence, our soul. The way for them to save their life is by losing it in Christ. And that starts with dad and mom. You want to know why first priority ministry is so important? It's just, just a moment in time for someone who loves Jesus to be able to speak into the life of a kid who may never hear it anywhere else and just to help them understand for a moment love for Jesus, desire the gospel. That maybe, maybe their life will be saved not by accumulation but by losing their life for His sake and the gospel. Well, the disciple, the true disciple, the way to secure our soul is to prioritize Jesus over our, our very existence, our everything. To choose our own path of security over Jesus, this text says, is to forfeit both Jesus and our soul. Don't miss that. Jesus says here to choose anything over me is to forfeit not just a relationship with me, but to forfeit who you are, who God has created you to be. So don't buy into the lie of the culture around us that says the way to find yourself is to go explore all these things. Jesus says the way to find yourself, who you are, is to understand who He is. To pursue Jesus is the way to ultimately find who you are. That's where your core is. Your very existence. And this is so weighty. I mean, I don't even know how to communicate this to us in this window of time God's given us. To gain everything, Jesus says, the world has to offer. But to lose your soul is a poor exchange. To live my life in the pursuit of obtaining and building my identity on anything outside of Christ is to recognize, is to fail to recognize the value of my eternal soul. Now guys, I don't want to pick on you too hard here. because I feel like I pick on guys a lot here at City Church. But men, you need to hear this. You need to hear that the pursuit of obtaining Pursuing anything, trying to build my identity on anything outside of Jesus is to fail to recognize the value of your own soul. 
So many guys that are pursuing and going after and attaining and acquiring and seeking and power and pride and all these things that are poured into us as a culture. And then we take a step back and Jesus says, if you pursue all of those things and there's no exchange for any of that compared to your own soul. And so my call to you as men is work hard and play hard and be a solid spouse, right? And all those things. But at the end of the day, pursue Jesus about everything else. Above everything else, you pursue Him. Be a disciple of Him and allow Him to work out all those other moving pieces. We need men to step into that space. For those who do not obtain eternal life by following Jesus, for those who refuse in Mark's gospel to live under His rule and reign, for those who spend their lives in self-promotion, Jesus issues a very solemn warning here, doesn't He? We read it. Maybe you didn't see it. Have the verse up on the screen, but look at it again. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He circles back to this idea of Son of Man, but I like how he kind of twists it here. They thought Son of Man meant he's going to come and establish his earthly rule and reign at that time. Jesus says, look, the Son of Man is coming to establish rule and reign over the earth, but He will come as a judge. When the Son of Man comes in the glory of His Father, right? Takes us back to Daniel 7. He will come as the judge and the kingdom with which we align ourselves will determine our final destination. That's a solemn warning. And then he brings us back to this final promise. Verse 1 of 9. I promise you I'm shutting it down. He said to them, truly, that's a point of emphasis in the text, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So New Testament scholars go back and forth on what Jesus is talking back here. In the context, it seems most appropriate that Jesus is circling back to this idea he just talked about, this idea of resurrection. That the path of discipleship which travels through self-denial and suffering does not end in death. It ends in resurrection life. Which some in his audience, right? Some of you standing here today, Jesus says, some in his audience will experience resurrection both in that day and age and the rest of us will experience it in the future. That there is life at the end of this. So, If you want to follow Jesus, here's the invitation to you. Deny. Die. Follow. Deny yourself. Die. Follow. Men, you want to follow Jesus? Be a disciple of Jesus? Deny. Die. Follow. Ladies, young people, we we need this, right? We need it in our schools, in our homes. You want to follow Jesus? Deny, die, follow. Deny yourself. Turn from this constant push towards self-promotion, self-fulfillment, the desire to acquire. Turn from this belief that we gain by getting, that we get ahead in life by accumulating more stuff and recognition and power and status and likes on social media. Jesus says, die to all of that. It is not the path of life. It's not why you were created. 
If you want to gain, if you want to live, if you want to truly live, lose yourself for His sake and the Gospels. That's where life is found, Jesus said. Exchanging your soul for the accumulation of junk is not worth the price. Obtaining everything this world has to offer, Jesus says, and losing your soul is a poor exchange. I joke about us having a yard sale this weekend, but man, I just I take a step back in those moments and like, what am I doing? Like, why am I trying to acquire a bunch of stuff that I pay all this money for and now I'm selling it for a quarter? Like, what in the what is the purpose of all this? Like, what, what lie have I bought into to think I need all this? And we joke about it and laugh about it and use phrases about hoarding and keeping and can't throw things away and right all that. And it's fun to laugh about all those things. But at the end of the day, are we giving our life toward obtaining and accumulating? Take up the cross and lay it down. Present your bodies, Paul says, as a living sacrifice to God and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus on the path of self-denial and suffering and rejection and loss and betrayal and possibly even death. Follow Jesus on this path because this is the path that leads to resurrection. This is the path of eternal life. Lose your life in this world in order to gain it in the next. Like I get it. I know, I struggle with it. I know this path runs counter to everything we are told. It runs counter to our human instincts. It runs counter to our self-preservation impulses. It runs counter to our self-focused nature. But it's the path of life. And we have to preach this over and over and over again, particularly in our culture. I was talking to Dale yesterday about a friend he has in China that leads children's ministry in underground churches in China, all throughout China. It's one of the fastest growing church movements in the entire world, and it happens in private and secretly and underground. And his contact in China that helps with the development of children's curriculum and things like that, there's like a fifth generation Christian in underground China where the gospel was brought and one after another, each generation coming to faith in Christ. And so they, this past week, have their VBS in China. So that looks different. That looks different in China. You can't publicize and send out flyers and Facebook ads, right? It's all underground. It's secret. And so they're having this massive kind of VBS movement that's happening in China. And guess what? They show up. The government shows up and arrests all the teachers that are leaving VBS and throw them in jail this week. Take up your cross. Lay it down. Leave it. Now, as we do at City Church, I'm bringing this back right here at the end to the gospel. Here's what I want you to hear. I feel like I've come down on us today. What I want you to know is that Jesus has walked this path ahead of us. We are following him. We deny ourselves because he, on his face in a garden, prayed, God, not my will, but yours. He denied himself. He says to us, take up your cross, because he went to a cross, innocently went to a cross and was slaughtered on a cross for our sins. He took up his cross. 
He did not shy away. He died on a cross. He was raised from the dead to enable us to follow Him. He empowers our journey. He is our strength. So do not walk out of these blood-marked doors today thinking that I am delivering a message about you trying harder. Because if you hear that, you missed it. It's not about you trying harder or doing better or living like a monk on bread and water or denying yourself of all of God's gracious gifts. This message is about aligning my life with His plan and purpose. It is about living in the rhythm of His grace. It is about waking up each day and surrendering this day afresh to Jesus. Today, Jesus, I die to myself again. Today, Jesus, I die to myself again and align my life to you. I know that everything around me today will pull me in the opposite direction. So I need your resurrection power to help me keep my eyes focused on you, to take up my cross today and follow you. That's what it means to live as a disciple, the everyday rhythms of life. And I'm going to get it wrong, right? I'm going to miss it. And so I wake up the next day and I say, Jesus, today, help me to die to myself. Everything around me that is pulling me away from this path, help me to align myself to you again today, to follow you today. Because here's what I want you to hear me say. This is the path of life. This is the rhythm of grace. This is the life of the disciple. And there is one just elephant in the room thing we cannot miss about this entire text. I told you way back at the beginning, I've mentioned a couple of times since, most New, most New Testament scholars believe that the person behind the writing of Mark's gospel, that Mark is just the person penning it, that he's interviewing someone about the life of Jesus. You remember who that is? It's Peter. Most scholars believe this is really kind of Peter's gospel through Mark. That Mark is hearing the stories from Peter and writing down and writing accounts of Peter. And I love that idea that this is Peter's account. That it was Peter that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Like if I'm Peter transcribing this sucker, I'm like, hey, just let's leave that chapter out. Leave out the whole when Jesus called me Satan moment. But no, what is Peter doing? Peter's saying, write this down, Mark, because listen, they need to know. They need to know. They need to know that we're going to miss it. And they're going to get it wrong. And they're going to follow their own path. And they're going to follow their own agenda. And when their life's on the line, they're going to be tempted to back up. They need to know. They need to know what it means to follow. It's why we need him. We don't know exactly what happened to Peter, but church history tells us he died, crucified on a cross. Some believe that at the time of his death, that Peter said, 
I don't want to be crucified like Jesus. I am not worthy. Would you crucify me upside down? You know who most historians believe was responsible for the death of Peter? A madman named Nero. Same people Mark's writing his book to. His narrative, Christians suffering under Nero. And he says to these Christians, remember. Remember the Peter incident? Remember, get behind me, Satan. Hear the good news. If anyone comes after me, Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. But here, here's the good news. This is the path to life. You want to live? You want to really live? You want to know why you were created? You want to know the core of why you exist? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow the author of life. Let's bow our heads for prayer.